Welcome to the John Mark Comer Teachings Podcast by Practicing the Way. This teaching was first given at Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon as a part of the Scripture series. Anybody recognize this photo? If you have been to Oxford, England, or if you are an uber history nerd, you recognize this as Martyr's Cross. I remember years ago, I was in Oxford for a day, and I was walking down Broad Street, and I just about tripped over this. And I thought, what in the world is this really ancient-looking cross in the middle of the road? And I had to Google it. Well, it turns out Martyr's Cross is the name of it. And it marks the spot where in 1555, three of the top leaders in the Church of England, Hugh Latimer, who's the Bishop of Worcester, Thomas Cranmer, who's the Archbishop, I'm sorry, Nicholas Ridley, who's the Bishop of London, and Thomas Cranmer, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury itself, were all burned at the stake right there by Queen Mary, or as she's come to be called, Bloody Mary, at the very beginning of the English Reformation, all because they refused to recant their heretical teachings, which were actually orthodox teachings they got from reading the Bible. They were willing to suffer acute pain and to die for what the scripture had to say because of the life's work and death of another martyr just a few decades before by the name of William Tyndale. I'm guessing most of you recognize that name. If you don't know his story, Tyndale was a linguist and a professor at Cambridge University, without a doubt, one of the great minds, not only of his time, but of Western civilization in general. He was a linguist, and so he became fluent in both Greek and Hebrew, And after reading the Bible in its original original languages, which was very rare, even for a priest, most priests at that time could not even identify where the Ten Commandments were in the Bible or where the Lord's Prayer was. Most of them had never read it because it was actually illegal at some level. After reading it, he came to two very simple conclusions that we take for granted and in his day and age were radical. One, that the Bible should function as the source of authority, or a better way to put that is as the access point to reality not the Pope or even tradition. And two, that every follower of Jesus should be able to read the Bible in his or her own language. Now, again, no-brainer for us because we live in a post-Tyndale, post-Reformation world. In his day and age, it was actually illegal in England under a 1408 law that was written to censor John Wycliffe's attempt a century before to translate the Bible into Middle English. So Tyndale just like full of a calling from God, escaped to Germany where the German Reformation was in full force, most likely, we don't know for sure, but was hiding under the protection of Martin Luther himself. And there he translated the first ever English version of the New Testament. With the help of a very well-to-do patron, he smuggled 18,000 Bibles across the channel into England. Followers of Jesus would hold secret meetings in homes where they would find somebody who would literate, and they would, at a whisper and a hush, they would read the Bible, and most were hearing the Bible read out loud for the first time. All they knew before was the Mass, which was in Latin, and the stained-glassed windows. When Henry VIII of fame, found out he was enraged. He bought up 6,000 copies through a nefarious source, and then he had them burned, this is a true story, had them burned on the steps of St. Paul's Cathedral in London. 
Can you imagine burning Bibles on the steps of the church? That's how far gone it was. He then passed a new law saying that all Tyndale's Bibles were to be destroyed upon contact, and anyone found with one was to be put to death. Eventually, he sent a spy across the English Channel to befriend Tyndale, who then betrayed him. Tyndale fell for the ploy. He was arrested, and after a year of torture, when he refused to recant, he was burned at the stake. Witnesses to his execution report that his last words were a prayer. God opened the king of England's eyes. And God answered that prayer. Actually, just a few years later, the king recanted, and he let the Bible be translated into English for the first time for all to read, which, as expected, created a theopolitical crisis for the power brokers of the day. 85% of the King James Bible, a number of years later, is literally cut and copied from Tyndale's, and a good chunk, I don't have an exact stat for you, but a good chunk of the English Bible that you have in your lap, if you're reading a little bit more of a literal translation like the ESV or the New American Standard at the NIV is still from his translation. Scholars call him the father of modern English due to his great influence on the English language itself and the ethos of Western civilization. All of which raises a question. What is it about this library that is open in your lap that some of the greatest luminaries of Western civilization, and not just Western, history itself, were willing to suffer and die just to make it available for you to read. And some of the most powerful leaders of history were willing to torture, maim, and kill just to keep it out of your hands. Why is it that almost all of the great empires of history, from the Roman Empire to Bloody Mary's England to Nazi Germany to Soviet Russia, have all put at least a censorship ban on the Bible and its teachings, if not made it full-on illegal? Why is it today that the ideological empires, remember Churchill after World War II said the empires of the future will be empires of the mind. It's no longer about territory, it's about ideology. Why is it that the ideological empires of both the progressive left and the conservative right often take such issue with the Bible? Why, what is it about this library that is such a threat to the status quo and yet so compelling to so many? Well, that in turn raises another question. What exactly is the Bible? Let's see what Jesus has to say. Luke chapter 4. Would you please stand with me to honor the reading of Scripture? Just as a way with your body, we're learning about a culture of honor, and just as a way with your body to honor this as more than just a text, but as Scripture. Luke chapter 4, verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside, like something's up with this rabbi. He was teaching in their synagogues. He was a rabbi. He was a teacher. He would show up on a Saturday, on a Sabbath morning, and he would teach. And everyone praised him. Now, he went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. The reason we're here, the reason that once a week on the Sabbath or on the Lord's Day, we gather together for the reading of Scripture and worship and prayer and time together is because we're followers of Jesus. And that was his template of life. 
Now he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Now part and parcel of synagogue life was a long, in one place, reading of the Torah of the day or the prophets. Isaiah was later, it was one of, one of the prophets, the Hebrew Bible, or what we call the Old Testament, followed by you know, some kind of a sermon. This is the, the origin point of both the sermon and as well as the later Christian idea of the lectionary, where every Sunday you would have a reading. So the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, unrolling it. Notice it's not a, not a codex. It's not like turned in the table. of. It was a scroll just with the prophet Isaiah. Remember that. He found the place where it is written. He was very familiar with the scripture. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. A rabbi would teach um, from a sitting position. Then the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Can you imagine sitting through a teaching of Jesus? Much better than this one. He began, don't laugh, come on, that was, you're supposed to say, no, really, you're just as good. He began, he began by saying to them, today this scripture, notice, is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Take a seat. That word fulfilled that we just read, it's the same word, you may recognize it. It's the same word we read last week in Jesus' teaching from the Bible on the Bible in Matthew chapter 5, or the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And here the version is peplerotai in Greek. And it's a word that is used by Matthew and Luke and the writers of the New Testament for a story or a prophecy from what we call the Old Testament, from the scriptures coming to pass in and through Jesus. Notice, here's what I want you to see. Very simple observation that says a ton about what the Bible is and what it isn't. Jesus reads a prophetic oracle from the 8th century BC that is in the form of a poem as if it is a story in search of an ending. And he sees it as he sees himself, I'm sorry, as the climax to the plot of that story. Now, this is a very different way of reading the Bible from the way at least that I grew up with, where the Bible was a mix of an encyclopedia of truth. So you pick your topic of choice, sexuality or money or marriage or whatever, and it's like you look it up in the table of contents, M-A-M-I, or marriage. Okay, what does the Bible say about marriage? Or kind of a mix of that and an allegory, where we read a number of the stories and we turned them into kind of a C.S. Lewis kind of allegory oracle kind of feel-good, beautiful moment. Now, we did a lot of work on this a number of years ago in a joint project that we ran with our friends at the Bible Project and down at Reality San Francisco that we called the Year of Biblical Literacy. How many of you were around for that? And I know we have a high turnover rate. Well, that few, really? That's, I quit my job tomorrow. Um, 
But if you want to augment our current practice, if, if I raise more questions than I answer, um, you're welcome to augment that with our teaching series. It's all available on our website. There are hours of content. I started off with a six-week series on just what the Bible is. And so all sorts of stuff if you want to fill in the blanks. What I want to do for the next 10 minutes and before we kind of move on is just summarize a year of teaching in 10 minutes. Are you ready for that? And if, if you want more, go back and listen. In short, we defined the Bible based on a text like Luke 4 and many others this way, as a library of writings that are both divine and human, that together tell a unified story which leads us to Jesus. Let me just parse that out line by line as a definition. The Bible is a library. The title Bible is misleading. In the ultimate act of irony, Bible is an unbiblical name. True, for this collection of writings. It never calls itself the Bible. That comes much later, a few hundred years later, with kind of Latin culture. In the Latin, it was the word Biblia, and actually originally it was plural, but later it kind of was devolved to the singular. And the word Biblia does mean book. The problem with that is this is not a book. It's very easy to forget that because it's all put together in one book which is a bit tricky. But remember, it wasn't put together like this until, you know, near a millennia and a half after Jesus, not only with Gutenberg, but after the English Reformation and widespread printing and literacy, most historians argue, which was a result of the English Reformation. And so now it's easy to carry around the Bible with you in your purse or on your phone. It was not that way. Prior to that, it was most likely a library put into 24 scrolls, one of which was Isaiah, which was a very long one. Now, it's very important, this is a very simple but key idea, that we think of the Bible as a library, not a book, because it has a huge effect on how we read the Bible. You come at a library, Multnomah County Library downtown or whatever, with a very different set of expectations than you can, and, and kind of tactics for reading, then you come at a book. A book normally has one genre. It's novel, or it's memoir, or it's poetry, or it's a textbook, but a library has it all, and you read each genre in a very different way. A book has one author. A library has many. A book was written all at once in the same era. A library spans time and culture and gender and worldview, as does the Bible, which was written over 1,000 to 1,500 years. And at an implicit level, we adopt a particular strategy for reading based on the kind of book or writing that we pick up. Very few people sit down on the couch with a good cup of tea and read a textbook on, you know, deep mathematics or a cookbook or a manual for a refrigerator. Or very few of us take notes and underline things in a sci-fi thriller from Michael Crichton. Or practice Lectio Divina over an Instagram post, right? I read a fair bit, um, and I'm always reading multiple books at once that I kind of have in different time slots because I nerd out like that. So right now, here's what I'm reading. I'm reading, you know, Zadie Smith's most recent novel. I love her work. I'm reading an anthology of poetry by Kristen Wyman. I'm reading an in-depth scholarly book that'll take me a year to get through by Fleming Rutridge, which is beautiful so far. A short academic work by Scott McKnight on the Bible. A very short, one of my favorite books of the year. I'm reading for the fourth time, Domestic Monastery, which is a book on parenting and spiritual formation by Rollheiser, and then a 20th century Quaker intellectual on devotional literature around prayer. Now, all six of these books convey truth, but they all do it in a very different way. 
And I come at these books in, with a very different posture. And some of them I only read on my Sabbath, and I only read, you know, Douglas or the poetry at very slow pace, and I think, and I meditate. And others, you know, I read late at night before I fall asleep, fiction. Or, like, I, I read them each in a different way, and I adopt a different strategy, and I interpret them each in a very... But all of them convey truth. All sorts of problems come when people don't recognize that the Bible is a library. It would be more helpful if we could spread out, here's Isaiah on the table, and here's the Psalms, and here's the Apocalypse that we call Revelation, and here's the Torah. It would be more helpful in that sense. This was written by dozens of authors and all sorts of genres, history, biography, poetry, prophecy, apocalyptic, census data, genealogical record, letters. I mean, it's all in here. A favorite saying of ours at Bridgetown is that we read the Bible not literally but literarily, which is our little quip, you know? Meaning we read it, we take it really seriously. Like the whole, like, do you read the Bible literally or metaphorically? That's a, that is an unintelligent way to even frame it. We read it according to its genre, according to what the original author intended to say. For example, when you pick it up on page one of Genesis, the first question you should ask is definitely not, is the Bible true or science? First question you should ask is, what type of literature am I reading? You should have a humility and a respect. I mean, in the same way that if you travel, a good, mind, good friend of mine just got on a plane for India, his first trip ever to India. If you've been to India or you're from India, as you know, it's a very different worldview, culture, ethnic value system. You come at a place like that with all sorts of humility. And if you walk off the plane and you just rapid fire judge this and think that and assume that, you get into all sorts of trouble. You come across a culture with respect and humility and an open, curious mind. And the Bible is like that but then add on a couple thousand years to it. You're reading Genesis. You're reading ancient Mesopotamian literature that most likely existed as oral tradition for who knows how long before it was even written down. So your first question is, what, what kind of literature is this? And, and how would an ancient Mesopotamian have read this? And how, how would it have compared and contrasted to other types of ancient literatures? And is this history like I'm reading in 1 Kings, or is it different? And does ancient historiography play by the same set of rules as the New York Times does today? And what should I expect from an ancient historian? Or is this not history, it's something, it's something else? Is it, is, it, is it mythology, and what does that mean? Does that mean something different in the ancient world than it does in ours? My point is... We must read the Bible literarily because the Bible is a library. Next, it is a library of writings that are both divine and human. Take a look at what Jesus said about the nature of the Bible as a divine human word. Here's a one line aside from Jesus in Mark's gospel. David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, and then there's a quote from the Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, and Jesus goes on with the quote. In this little aside of Jesus, we see his view of the Bible as both divine and human. He doesn't seem to read the Bible as an invention, just as the byproduct of human imagination or wishful thinking or projection. He doesn't say David speaking from his own experience or David airing his own opinion or David making crap up or David with his narrow view of God and his built-in prejudice. But neither does he read it as a kind of dictation, a kind of, you know, glossy-eye fugue of David, like a, when David woke up from his trance, there was drool on the papyrus and a word of God, and it said. 
He doesn't read it that way either. Instead, he seems to read it as a kind of divine human collaboration. Theologians often call this the incarnational model of scripture. In the same way that Jesus was not divine or human, but he was divinity and humanity in the same place. He was the son of God and the son of man. In the same way, scripture is both God-breathed in the language of Paul, and it was written by a human biographer or poet or historian or genealogical census keeper or politician. And in the same way, I think as a general rule, this is a simplification, but that conservative struggle to accept the humanity of Jesus, if you know anything about Western theology, and prefer to think of Jesus as God in a body, and progressives struggle to accept the divinity of Jesus, and prefer to imagine Jesus as, you know, 99% human with a spark of the divine in a kind of Hindu speak your truth, Sunday morning yoga kind of way. So too, conservatives struggle with the human or the literature side of the Bible, and progressives tend to struggle with the divine or the scripture, in particular the authoritative side of the Bible. Tim Mackey calls the popular level, even popular level, evangelical view of the Bible the golden tablets view, as in like the Bible fell from heaven like golden tablets that dropped out of the sky all in one piece, no hair, no contradiction, no tension at all, which is actually the Mormon view of the Book of Mormon. It's not remotely the Orthodox Christian view of the Bible. It never has been, but it is a popular level misreading of it. The tragedy of this view is it's making claims for the Bible that the Bible doesn't even make for itself. And the Bible has very high claims to make for itself, Jesus in particular. But this way of reading the Bible is a crisis of faith waiting to happen. All it takes is one freshman-level Bible's lit class to demolish this view or to poke holes in it, or even more likely, one misleading podcast where there's no true academic there to counter what's said. As a result, people often throw out the Bible altogether, and with it, faith itself, or at least any kind of robust apprenticeship to Jesus, rather than relearning to read the Bible for what it actually is, a divine and human word. The Bible never tries to hide from you its human side. It's not a dirty little secret. Paul is very honest. I can't, he has, there's moments where he's like, I can't remember who I baptized, you know? Or he's like, I, not the Lord. Like, it doesn't tr- attempt to hide this from you at all. It doesn't attempt to hide that it's speaking through the worldview and the scientific grasp and the seven planets were thought. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't attempt to hide any of that from you. It's not even an open secret. It's just open. Nor does it attempt, and please listen, because this is what we need to hear in our city, to downplay or explain away the mystery of its divine side and to read it as the true access point to reality, or what we would call authority. Peter captures the both-and nature of the Bible very well. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, meaning what do I want? I said it was one of C.S. Lewis and C.S. Mere Christianity, one of his great, his great case for Christianity. It's like, if you were going to make up a religion, this is not the one that you would make up. <laughs> you would not say, come deny yourself and follow me. There are so many things that feel right and yet are against everything in our flesh, right? This has never had its origin in human will, but prophets, that's the name for the writers of the Bible, Though human, spoke from God as they, and I love this imagery, were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In Greek, it's a word picture of a sailboat and the wind in the sail. 
Or take a look at what Paul writes. All scripture is God-breathed, theopneustos in Greek, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We read that last week. But do you see the beauty and the mystery of the nature of scripture? I really like that language of God-breathed. I read a New Testament scholar a few days ago who compared the Bible to like and this idea of how it's God-breathed to a master musician playing an instrument. Like, let's say you go to the symphony, and there's a famous French horn player, or oboe player, or some kind of a wind instrument, and you hear this just music as if it's from heaven come into your ear. Is that music coming from the French horn, or is it coming from the musician? Yes. <laughs> there, there is a... Uh, there is an intelligence and an artist and a skill and a brain that, and a lung and a capacity and a breath that is coming from outside the instrument, but it is coming through the instrument. And it is both part of the potential of what that instrument can and, and the limitations, what that instrument cannot do. In the same way, scripture is God-breathed. When you read it, is it divine or is it human? Yes, there's a vast mind and being of immense skill and creativity and intelligence and wisdom that is playing through or breathing through this instrument and all of its potential and all of its limitations, all of the human author's limitations of scientific grasp or historical understanding or whatever it is. In the same way, the Spirit of God is breathing through the instrument that is Moses or David or Peter or Paul or Luke to make the sound of Scripture. It's a library of writings, divine and human, that together tell a unified story. Now, the Bible is full of stories, as you well know. There are all sorts of genres of literature in the scriptures, history, mythology, poetry, genealogy, memoir, biography, love letters, songs, apocalyptic, and more. But they essentially fall into three kind of broad categories. Narrative, which makes up about 44%, just about half. Poetry, which comes in second at 33% of of the pie, and then what scholars call um, discourse or teaching, which is that last line, 23%. This is Sermon on the Mount or the book of Deuteronomy or chunks of Paul's letters. Notice that in spite of many people's view of the Bible as a rule book, most of the Bible is story and poetry. But here's the key insight. All of the stories and poetry and teachings of the Bible together tell one long panoramic unified story. The beginning of the library says, in the beginning, God. The end says, the second to last line says, I am coming soon. This is a story. And if you miss this, that there's a larger story at work, you will get lost in the micro story. Tim Keller says it well. The reason for our confusion over the Bible is that we usually read the Bible as a series of disconnected stories, each with a quote moral for how we should live our lives. It is so blunt, it is not. <laughs> if you can imagine his tone of voice, right, from New York. Rather, it comprises a single story telling us how the human race got into its present condition and how God, through Jesus Christ, and I would argue through Israel as well, has come and will come to put things right. This is the great danger of hearing the Bible as a child in Sunday school. We read stories like Noah and the Ark or David and Goliath, which are not children's bedtime stories. They are very sophisticated, violent, 
honest, vulnerable, intelligent, perceptive works of literary art that we often dumb down to a five-minute children's version and then attempt to draw a moral lesson from it that has something to do with obey your parents, <laughs> which I'm all for. <laughs> Thank you, Justin, and the team in the back. But can you imagine if we were to do that with East of Eden by John Steinbeck? Summarize that in five minutes for a four-year-old. Man has sex with prostitute. Don't ask what that is. Goes very bad. Don't do that. Like, I mean, you can't, you can't do that to a sophisticated piece of literature. And if you were to, the danger would be to ruin the novel for later when the child is actually old enough to appreciate it as the masterpiece it is. Now, that's not to say that we should not read the Bible to our children. I, I think we should, and I do, most nights around the table. It is to say that these stories are not short allegorical tales with a moral point, per se, but deep, sophisticated literary insights into the nature of the human condition, above all to God and to reality itself. This is why the Bible is very hard to understand at times. All good literature is. That's why so few people read it. Seriously. The number of people that read like a Pulitzer Prize winning novel, it's a very small number of people. It's hard to understand. Its meaning is not clear. It's complex. It's a little bit boring at times. And it will enrich your soul in ways that you can't believe. A few years ago, um, this is a little fun fact, I wrote a novel that will never see the light of the day. Don't email me for it. And it was not a literary novel. It was a young adult novel for my kids that was part-time hobby and part-time just my evil genius dad plan to make my children readers. And uh, as a part of it, I just spent a little, a few months uh, to nerd out, and I just, I read quite a bit around story and writing, and particularly around plot and, you know, screenwriting and things like that. I came across this beautiful book, it's well known, by James Scott Bell in his little book, Plot and Structure, and he just writes about how there are two basic types of plots in both film, cinema, TV, literature. You have a commercial plot, which is marked by rising action, right? So this is basically, you have a protagonist, it's the heroic journey, and you just, as the, as the screenwriter or the author, you just throw stuff and you just knock them down and they get back up and knock them down and get they back up and you're down, but Ray comes back and she does it again and Kylo Ren comes out of the chasm to do it again, right? And then you have, don't woo for that, that is a gross travesty and sacrilege of Star Wars, that's a whole other thing whoever you are. And the end is it's this climactic kind of knockout ending. This is every Marvel movie. It's every Star Wars movie since the second one, which was the last good one we had. It's, it's, you know, summer at the movies. And, you know, it's Hunger Games. It's all of that. Now, most, then, then the other type of plot you have, next slide, is a literary plot, which is more about the inner journey. It's complex and nonlinear, and the ending is often a letdown. Like you get to the end of reading a really good novel, and it doesn't end, it's just the last page. <laughs> you keep waiting for like, what's going to happen? And it's just, you're over, it's done, okay? And it's, or it's vague, or at times it's hopeful but unclear. And the reality is most of the stories in the Bible are not commercial. The Bible does not read like Greek mythology. They are literary. We love to tell the kind of heroic stories of David and Goliath or whatever, always out of context. 
Read the actual story of David's life from beginning to end. Read what happens after David and Goliath. His years of persecution and hiding and and mistakes that he made. Read about his affair and then the whole second half of his life, which is just basically a commentary on the fallout of polygamy and infidelity. The end, it ends with, you know, power dynamics with his son and political chaos and violence. In the very end, David is sleeping with a young woman as an old bitter man calling for his son Solomon to get his revenge on an emotional wound from decades before. We don't read that part to the children. Or, you know, recently I read in Chronicles the story of King Asa, who, you know, it's this epic story, like right out of like a revival sermon or whatever. He just, he's the leader of this national renewal in Israel. It's just stunning. And then in the last paragraph, he has an issue with the prophet. He has a hard heart toward God. And then at the very last paragraph of this crazy story, read this. In the 39th year of his reign, Asa was afflicted with a disease in his feet. Okay, though his disease was severe, even in his illness, he did not seek help from the Lord, but only from his physicians. Then in the 41st year of his reign, Asa died and rested with his ancestors. Uh, that's not helpful. What, what's the moral of that? Make sure you keep your feet clean or consider a career in podiatry. I mean, what, what's, the, what's the moral of, uh, of that? And, and why are so many of the stories like this? Unclear, non-climactic, complex, bit of a bummer, because life is like this. Life from the inside does not feel like a commercial plot. Life does not feel like some are at the movies, and if it does, you're 22, and I hate to break it to you, it will not last. <laughs> Just here to love on you. Life feels from the inside like a literary journey. That's why we read literary fiction, to enlarge our soul. Very few of us feel like Captain America or Thor, unless if it's the last Thor, the late one, or, or Ray, or we feel more like David, or Asa, or Hannah dealing with infertility in the silence of God, or Naomi, Naomi dealing with famine and the death of her husband and her bitterness in old age. All that to say, when you read the Bible, you are reading literary art. If you want, this is going to sound weird, and I hesitate to say this. If you want extra credit, there's nobody, there's no extra credit. But if you want extra credit for our practice, if you're not a reader, which is, um, which is t- absolutely fine, I'm guessing most of you are not, um, or you're not a reader of literary fiction, I would encourage you to read at least one hard-to-read literary masterpiece in your life. I would recommend East of Eden by John Steinbeck. It's, it's a masterpiece of the 20th century, written on the West Coast, and it's also all about Genesis 4, one word in Genesis 4, and the nature of free will. Or read Anna Karenina, or Moby Dick, or something that's, read it, take a year to read it, or whatever. But if you're not, if you're, all you're used to is summer at the movies, Netflix, and Hunger Games, you come to the Bible and you just don't have a framework. I actually have, have really come to read the Bible much better just through reading fiction. It's done something to enlarge my soul and to enable me to, to kind of get ahead around, oh, this is what I'm reading. I just lost all of you. All right, well, whatever, if you want to do it. Finally, moving on. Library, divine, human, unified story, which leads us to Jesus. 
You read with me last week Jesus' line, quote, you study the scriptures diligently because you think in them you have eternal life, but these are they which testify of me. Maybe you've come across this adage, you know, Jesus is on every page. And there's a little truth in that, but that's a little dangerous because then people start to read the Bible like an allegory, and it's my deep conviction that it's not. But what's right about that impulse is that every page is a literary step in the direction of Jesus coming to usher in the kingdom of God. When you read the Bible, you realize in the story that it tells, Jesus is the climax and the center, not only of its library, but of reality itself. And everything else orbits around Jesus. All the things that we think are the climax in the center, pleasure or materialism or technology or progress or Washington, D.C. or Silicon Valley are not the center, but are the margin. Jesus is actually the center. To read the Bible is to accept an invitation to live in congruence with the reality that is Jesus. To recap, the scriptures are a library of writings that are both divine and human that together tell a unified story which leads us to Jesus. Now, that work done, and stay with me a little bit longer, I know this is a bit here. Let's apply this working theory of what the Bible is to what the Bible is for. If you were here last week, just a reminder that we read the Bible not for information, but for formation. We read it, and definitely not for entertainment. We read, though some of it is fascinating, but we read it to hear God's voice, to surrender to him, and to let the spirit and the word form us into the image of Jesus. Inside of that rubric, which is how we approach it as an apprentice of Jesus, it starts to make perfect sense why most of the Bible is story and why together, even the poetry and memoir and genealogy, it all tells a meta story. Because we all have a story, a kind of narrative by which we make sense of and draw coherence to the complexity of human existence. The human, I'm sorry, the screenwriter Babette Buster in her beautiful book on storytelling and why we crave story calls human beings narrative animals. We're just bent to ask the questions of human existence. Who are we? What does it mean to be human? Where are we right now? What is the meaning and purpose of life? What's gone wrong? How do we fix it? All of those are questions of story, author, protagonist, antagonist, plot, setting, conflict, resolution. And we literally can't function without a story to live by. Recent research suggests that our brains are hardwired for narrative. Neurobiologist Mark Turner writes this, story is the basic principle of how the human mind works. Most of us experience our knowledge and our think, most of our experience, our knowledge and our thinking is organized as a set of stories. Narrative structure is essential not only for effective communication, but for thinking itself. When children ask to hear a story, it's not simply a biological craving for amusement or demand for attention, it is that. But it arises out of a genuine human need to make sense of the disparate experiences of our lives. And that need is addressed in storytelling. Through stories, we learn how to see patterns, we learn about cause and effect, to discover the consequences of our choices, our sense of right and wrong, what is important or least valuable in life, all of these are shaped for us by the stories we hear and live. Now, there are other names for this idea. Psychologists use the language of mental maps, sociologists, worldview. Historically, the word people have used is religion, which is a word that's fallen out of favor. 
Most of us think of religion as belief in God or the supernatural, but that's not an academic definition because it doesn't work on even some of the major world religions, like, for example, Buddhism, which has no category for God or any kind of a personal God or the supernatural. It's more like a psychology for life. It doesn't actually work at a technical level in Hinduism, which is more about the inner essence. And it definitely doesn't work on, say, Confucianism or others. A better and more precise definition of religion, here's one from Tim Keller that I prefer, a set of beliefs that explain what life is all about, who we are, and the most important things human beings should spend their time doing. By that definition, all people are religious, followers of Jesus, in spite of our love for saying, we're not religious, we follow Jesus. That's ridiculous. We're very religious. And so are agnostics and Buddhists and Muslims and atheists and Darwinian materialists. The way of Jesus is a kind of religion. Populism is also. Socialism and progressive activism are a very popular religion in our culture. Careerism is another. Hedonism is another. All the ideologies and isms of our time are some kind of a religion, a story to make sense of who we are, what's wrong, how do we fix it, what's the point of life? The question is not do we have a story or are we religious, but what story or religion do we live by? Now, there are tricky things about this. One, every story has to come from another source, not from inside. Two, not all stories are true. And three, the story you believe or come to trust in will determine the person you become, for better or for worse. As my friend Pete Hughes put it, the story you live in is the story you live out. Another Pete, Peter Berger, who was, as many of you know, the most influential sociologist of the 20th century and kind of the, the expert on the role of religion and the soul and society. His work is just stunning. And he made the point that, you know, we shape our stories as a civilization and then our stories shape us. All that to say the story that you trust and that you live by, it will shape the person you become And it will either cause you and I to live in alignment with reality with a capital R and then to show up to reality, well, to show up to our gender, to show up to our sexuality, to show up to relationships, to show up to money, to show up above all to God and to live in alignment with reality and as a result to flourish and thrive. As Jesus said of his teaching, wisdom is justified by our children. Or as Bethany would say, the proof's in the pudding, right? Bethany, wherever you are, one of my favorite sayings of Jesus. And, or we live at odds with reality, at odds with the way that God designed the body, the soul, the spirit, all of it to function. And as a result, we just, we suffer the pain and we miss out on the life that we all crave. Now, this is where the Bible comes in. Not only does the Bible tell a story, to answer the central questions of the human search for meaning, but it also calls into question all of the other stories on offer. The Croatian philosopher Ivan Illich, after many years in South America through the revolutions of the last half of the 20th century, was once asked, you know, what do you think is the best way to change, to overthrow a government? Is it through violent revolution or slow, gradual change? And he had this great answer. He said, neither. The best way is to tell an alternative story. That's how the Bible works. It tells an alternative story to both the left and to the right, to digital capitalism, 
to postmodernism, to all the isms and ideologies out there. This is how, over and over again down through history, and still in this day around the developing world and the global south, the Bible in its story has brought down empires without a single shot, just by bringing to bear the power of reality. And this is what we want as apprentices of Jesus. We want the Bible to do to us, to tear down the empires of our heart that are locked from the inside, the ideologies and isms that we are imprisoned to and to let us out into that the ideology is the prison that keep us from life in the kingdom of God with Jesus and to let us out into freedom with Jesus, to live in alignment with reality. We do this simply by reading it and letting it mess with us. And if you don't think, the, if the Bible doesn't upset you, you don't know how to read it right. Letting it just upset our equilibrium, disturb us, comfort us, answer our questions, but also question our answers. And just reading the scripture is an act of counterformation to the world and its stories as we're exposed to Jesus' story. It's a way to redraw our mental maps to align with reality under God. Now, there are all sorts of ways as we near the end of reading the Bible. The plan for our practice is to experience with four over the next four weeks that, you know, if you study church history are basically the four, what most followers of Jesus consider the four most helpful ways of reading the Bible. They are, one, reading or hearing, remember this is all oral culture until very recently in the human story, large portions or entire books in one sitting, Second, reading short sections in deep meditation, or what's called Lectio Divina, or it's Latin for spiritual reading. Third, study, or kind of doing deep work on large or small portions of books. And finally, memorization, where, as Jesus said, you let my word abide in you. You just let scripture root itself deep in your mind and imagination and rewire your neural pathways day by day. There are other ways to read the Bible, such as Ignatian, imaginative reading, and such, but these are the main four. Um, on the docket for this week at up on practicingtheway.org slash scripture is reading or hearing large portions of the Bible or entire books at one time. Now, a short word on that before we're at done. The way most of us experience the Bible is in little chunks, a verse at a time or maybe a chapter or two at a time. That's not bad per se at all, but it is dangerous if that's the only way you experience the Bible. Imagine if the only way you ever were to experience, you know, Star Wars or whatever was just a meme here or a trailer there, which is so much better looking than it really was, or a poster there, but you've never actually, or a clip on YouTube, but you've never actually sat down and watched the movie straight through as it was designed by, you know, George Lucas or whoever to be experienced. That's how many people experience the Bible. Like, I love that meme. God will not tempt you more than you can bear or whatever. But most of the Bible was designed by each author to be read out loud in the community of God, actually not by yourself, in one sitting. But ironically, the way of reading scripture that the authors, for the most part, not all, but most of them intended to be the primary way, has become the most uncommon of all to the degree that many of you in the room have never once experienced it in your entire life. 
And while it is a hard, and this is the tricky thing, it's a hard practice to recapture because we're no longer an oral culture. We're not used to sitting through a two-hour-long Abraham Lincoln sermon and remembering most of it, right? Those moments are gone. But still, there is something about reading or hearing the Bible in large portions or one of Paul's letters in one sitting or whatever, together as the community of God that has this effect where we think it calls into question all of the stories that we're bombarded, assaulted with at almost like emotional violent level in our city and our work and the Orwellian, you know, kind of training and ideology around certain progressive ideas. It calls all of that into question. And all of a sudden we remember, oh yeah, this is who we are. This is our story. We're the people of God. We're the followers of Jesus. Oh, yeah, this is where history of going. Oh, yeah, Jesus is the center, not that. Oh, yeah, Jesus is the future, not that. And it just calls all of us back to reality. So our practice for the week ahead is twofold. One is just with your community after dinner this week. Just read a large portion. Pick whatever you want or, you know, a book if you want, if it's a short one, out loud in one sitting. We recommend Philippians. So we did this, I think, a year ago in one of our practices with Ephesians. Anybody remember that? We just read through Ephesians, six chapters long, takes about 15 minutes. And at first you feel angsty and bored and you're like, and then Richard starts to read and he just has the best voice. If you know Richard Hook, he just has this radio voice and all of a sudden the spirit of God comes and it's amazing. And just to experience that and, and don't like, just let it be what it is. Don't attempt to manipulate it into this, you know, mountaintop, just let it work on you. And then two, on your own, in your regular reading slot, whether that's every day, which I would encourage you to work toward, or a few times a week, or whatever, or never, try reading a large portion of the Bible, the first half of Exodus, or all of Romans, or whatever you want, in an unhurried way, but not at Lectio Divina pace. Just read it, as you would if you, somebody was reading it to you, hearing it out loud, and just let it work on you. To end, let me restate what we said last week. As important as technique is, large portions versus Lectio Divina, the role of study, all of that, and learning to read the Bible as literature and hermeneutics and theology, all of that is very important. Don't hear me wrong. But posture is far more important. You get posture wrong, you get everything else wrong. We must not only read the Bible and read it with the right hermeneutic, we must read it in the language of Jesus with ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church and to you. Meaning with an inner ear open to the voice of God and an inner heart posture of surrender, openness, and yieldedness to God and his pleasure in order for the Bible to open its treasures to us. The most basic posture of an apprentice of Jesus is listening and surrender. And we come to the Bible with all of our questions and with all of what we think are our answers as apprentices of Jesus, as Willard once said, as a part of our conscious strategy to cooperate with God for the full redemption of our life. It's how at a conscious level, we wake up, we open our Bible, or whenever you do it, we read, 
and we say, God, I'm here to let you transform me. I'm here to hear your voice. I'm here to have all of my assumptions questioned, all of my fear called out, all of my desire and experience put onto paper and into language. And above all, I'm here to open and to yield. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Practicing the Way. We are a crowdfunded nonprofit that exists because of the generosity of listeners like you. To support our work, join The Circle, our community of monthly givers. To give or to learn more about running our resources in your church or small group, visit practicingtheway.org.